Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Edmonia Lewis was the very first sculptor of African American and Native American descent to achieve international recognition. Due to the extreme prejudice against her heritage, she ended up achieving her greatest success while working in Europe. The end. Let's talk about Edmonia Lewis. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1866, both the ASPCA and the New York City Board of Health were formed. Jesse James robbed his first bank, the Clay County Savings Association in Liberty, Missouri. Otto von Bismarck and Tsar Alexander II both survived assassination attempts. Charles E. Hires invented Hires Root Tea. Soon he marketed it as root beer. The very first public roller rink opened in Newport, Rhode Island. The tin can with a key opener was patented. Howard University was formed. Anne Sullivan Macy, Beatrix Potter, H.G. Wells, and Butch Cassidy were all born. The Grand Dame of Champagne, Madame Klikoff, died. And in 1866, in a new-to-her studio, in a new-to-her city, Edmonia Lewis was establishing herself as a new-to-the-world artist. A little ears warning, section two does include a not graphic allusion to assault. So you might want to preview that before you listen in an open forum. And now on with the show. Mary Edmonia Lewis was born probably in 1844, just outside of Albany, New York, in a town named Greenbush. Yes, it is one of those stories. Yes. Right from the beginning, even Greenbush, you can't find it on a map right now because it's now Rensselaer. Yes. Well, she was the youngest child of her father, who is probably Samuel Lewis, and the only child of her mother, Catherine Mike. Lewis. It must be said there is a second candidate for Papa, one Robert Benjamin Lewis, writer of the first history of African Americans and Native Americans and their relationship to the new world. <laughs> I think that would be a great Papa just for the narrative. <laughs> However, this relationship is tenuous at best and not the majority opinion. Anyway, I find that man so fascinating, regardless that I will give you a link to his life, even though <laughs> he's not even related. Um, moving on, though, Edmonia's most likely papa, Samuel Lewis, worked as a gentleman's valet. Or would it actually be valet because papa was of African and Haitian descent and likely had spoken French as a first language? Yes. He had been married before in Haiti and had had um, a first wife and many children in Haiti and moved his family to the United States, where his first wife and the majority of his children died. I'm sorry to say Haiti. And I think we've mentioned this before. I feel like we must have had just in recent decades experienced a revolution or we should say maybe a reckoning. First, Spain, then France had been kidnapping Africans and transporting them into slavery in the Caribbean to further the sugar trade. We in America always think slavery equals cotton. So thank you, Gone with the Wind, for that. But sugar had been the bad guy for centuries to the point where transcendentalists in New England often did not consume sugar for that very reason. Um, they didn't use silk because there were little children working in the silk mills and they 
didn't enjoy sugar because of the slave trade. So they were living their boycotts of one. I really admire that. Mm -hmm. Anyway, in Haiti, the enslaved people rose up and there was mass slaughter of their oppressors. The initial violence and just determined resistance of the Black population of Haiti made their name sort of feared among white populations all over the place. And so her dad, being a Haitian, kind of put a little different color on her ancestry. And as she often does, she altered her history to suit her audience. And she downplayed that aspect of her background almost to the point of invisibility. Mama Catherine was the daughter of an escaped enslaved man, and her mother was of mixed race, African-American and You'll see it a lot as Ojibwe. More likely, we would call them Chippewa. The Ojibwe people do not like that word. They actually prefer the term that they use, which is Anishinaabe, Native Americans. And that means the original people. Mm -hmm. Mama Catherine had been born in Canada and may have lived on a tribal community early in her childhood, but they did not stay there because her parents were so mixed that they weren't necessarily as welcomed as they would have been had they been more indigenous blood running through their family lines. So they moved across the border up to Albany, New York, which isn't that far. And at some point, somehow, Catherine and Samuel met and married and settled near Greenbush, New York. Catherine was an artisan in and of herself. She created beaded moccasins and trinkets and sold them to tourists in the upstate New York area. But but most of the family story really is behind a veil of history. There are no records that were ever kept. The consensus seems to be that Mary's father died when she was about three and her mother died only a couple of years after that. This was a time period when a lot of waves of different diseases were just wielding their size through the Northeast. And Mary and her half-brother Samuel went to live with her mother's sisters with the Ojibwe, which, no, they were not his family in any way. Samuel, who was called by the tribe Sunrise, worked as a barber to help support himself from a very early age, from about the age of 12. He was a man of enterprise, even at a very early age. Wildfire, Mary's tribal name, helped her aunts or aunts, if you are Susan, <laughs> to make handcrafts for the tourist trade, which they sold largely in the Niagara Falls area. Niagara Falls was the place to visit, a checkbox on any respectable traveler's bucket list, you know. And the trade was brisk for their, quote, exotic souvenirs, moccasins, pincushions, baskets, even herbal medicine. I would think of Niagara Falls as kind of like a mid-century modern honeymoon destination. But the tourist trade in the area began as early as the 1820s with 40,000 visitors a year in the 1820s. So by the time Mary Wildfire got there, it was a booming area because the railroads were starting to come in, both from the Canadian and the United States side, bringing even more tourists. 
And in a twist of timing, I listened to the Office Ladies podcast where they're going like episode by episode. Um, and literally this week, they released Niagara Part Two, in which, spoiler alert, I mean, the show's real old. Jim and Pam get married on the Maid of the Mist at Niagara Falls. And, um, you know, it's considered to be like, oh, the most romantic place you can get to from Scranton, <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. And it was very romantic. Your media is so much uh, upscale than mine because I was catching up with The Bachelor (laughs) and this season they went on The Maid of the Mist. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, anyway, so it's been, um, you know, an icon of romance for well over two centuries now, which is weird because I am still thinking at some part of my head that it is 2020. But like we've passed that. (laughs) I have no idea what, what month it is either. So. You're fine. No, well, don't know the year. Don't know the month. Just know about Edmonia right now. <laughs> Wildfire learned to read and write from Jesuit priests who worked among the northern tribes, and she called them the Black Robes. These priests who are really into um, their their mission is to be out in the world and doing practical things. So that's what they chose to do. And these priests traveled with them as they moved through Canada and upstate New York. So she already knew how to read and write. And most likely, this is the point where she is baptized into the Roman Catholic faith. The Jesuits are big on that. Uh, There's no actual pinpoint. However, the American Catholic History Podcast says that this is when she was baptized. So I am inclined to trust them. So this this is when she began her faith as a Roman Catholic, which is uh, adds just another element of, wow, that's interesting. You don't see that coming. It also is pretty late because Catholics usually get baptized right after birth. So, right. Okay, so when Wildfire was eight years old, her 20-year-old half-brother decided to take responsibility for her upbringing. He, however, was going to seek his fortune by heading West, but young men do not take their third grade sisters to the gold fields of California. No, they do not. (laughs) And so he made a plan. He set up a place for her to board with the family of one Captain S.R. Mills and then paid for her tuition at a local dame school, which is really nothing more than an elementary school in someone's house. She was there for four years. And in that time, Samuel was out in California. Now, we often say that the people who make money during the gold rush are not necessarily the miners, but there's a support staff. They are the barbers. And if they are very good businessmen, they take that money that they earned from barbering and they invest it into miners, not necessarily going and digging themselves, but supporting miners in return for, you know, some type of financial reward. This was very successful for Samuel because he made a lot of money during the gold rush. And he is really defying our old, the only people that made money are the people that made pancakes and pickaxes. We're going to have to come up with a P word that percentage, (gasps) percentage, because it wasn't really the Barbary. It was his investments. Yes. Yes. There you go. Pancakes, pickaxes and percentage. (laughs) Back in New York, Mary, as she was known now at school, was getting too old for a dame school and moved at the age of 12 to the short-lived New York Central College in McGraw, New York. Now, this institution was founded to be what they called a shining beacon of egalitarianism. 
students were accepted with no regard to color, to gender. This was seen as so radical for the time as to almost be heart attack inducing. I'm all for ideals, said the the liberal population of the Northeast. But this is whack. This is way too much. This is so much utopia. I can't have it. Even the village where they established themselves, though, was so supportive of this school that they bid to have the school built there. You know, they contributed finances to build the school in their town. So, yeah, it's really far out, but there's a lot of supporters, not just those setting up the school, but those in the area, too, which should have helped. Well, they were always fraught with financial difficulties, I think, due to the low tuition. It only cost $450 a year, and that's in current money at the high school level to go to school there. You know, that's, you know, what can you do for $450 a year here with regard to board, to food, to, you know, lodging, even Mm -hmm. forget paying teachers or whatever? There was only 109 students. So you can do that math. (laughs) It's not a lot of money. There was a lack of attention to fundraising. And although they did squeak through with money given to them by the New York State Legislature, the feeling (laughs) in the Capitol was as follows. We'd better give this money to any mob that will raise this obnoxious edifice to the ground. (laughs) Like, okay, well, mm. (laughs) well, Albany was, you know, 300 miles away. Here's something else that was coming. This was a sentiment that was just, here you got this little bubble. Yeah, this is really rock star cool right here. But then the whole outside, the whole donut that wasn't the whole, thought the following. If things are suffered to go on at this rate, the whole region will be infected with abolitionism and the contagion of free speech will spread. Oh, heavens. I know. Place the back of your hand on your forehead. We can't have the contagion of free speech. But while she was there, she did get an education. She studied the Bible from front to back. She learned arithmetic, Latin, French, grammar, and composition. And despite what she later claimed was, quote, they could do nothing with me because she said she was so wild. She got good grades at this school. She just, again, downplayed that later in life to have this image of her as this kind of wild child in her youth. She said, I was used to run free in the woods like my mother's people. Okay, number one, this was a really casual school for the time. You know, the familiarity and spontaneity of classes was another like shocking aspect of this school from the outside. Why are people sitting on the steps having class right now? Why? (laughs) Some of the teachers were African-American. There were students from Cuba, from Haiti, from West Africa, from Mexico, from local tribes of Native Americans, the sons and daughters of abolitionists white abolitionists. It was just so crazy. Number two, Mary did get great grades even in conduct, which was always at 100%. (laughs) So maybe they couldn't do anything with her, but she kind of did things for herself, you know? (laughs) But this place was the focus of just famous names of the movements of the day. Frederick Douglass, Lucy Stone, Lucretia Mott, Amelia Bloomer, 
<laughs> who was such an inspiration for, quote, reform dress at the institution that most of the female students wore reform dress, i.e. bloomers under shorter skirts. And I saw an article that said something like, I hope they continue to adopt these fashions even after they leave here. Mm. Um, spoiler alert, most of them did not. No. But this institution became a stop on every self-respecting reformers tour of America. In its brief life of only 10 years open, Mary was there right at the only time it was ever there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Almost like it was there just for her. And, you know, in some ways it was. It was one of only two schools in the country that would accept anybody, regardless of their heritage or their gender. It didn't matter. And for Mary, who was so mixed, it kind of was the perfect place for her to be. Now, at 15, her brother, Samuel, and some local abolitionist activists arranged for Mary to enroll in the number one name in co-ed multiracial education in the country, off far from home, though, to Oberlin, Ohio, where she attended the Oberlin Academy Prep School, which was basically the high school attached to Oberlin College. And her isolation, I just want us to think about this for a second. She has not had any, any family life since the age of eight. Mm -hmm. She never went home for any school holidays. She just stayed around, took extra lessons. And I have a neighbor who was sent to boarding school at eight. And he genuinely, and he's in his 50s, has never forgiven his parents for that. Never. Yeah. And I can't imagine everybody who's been sent to boarding school is like that. But I'm very interested to know because humans are human no matter what era they're born in. Right. I, I, I don't know what I mean. Her parents weren't around to be mad at. And the only person that she could target was her brother who was out west working his fanny off, you know, to support her. Well, I'm not saying she had to target anyone with anger, but like she had to be lonesome and bereft. I mean, as a child mm -hmm. and then later as a teenager, you look around and, you know, things people yeah. take for granted have always been gone from your life. I, right. you know, I, I imagine you get used to what you're handed, but I just think when I read things like this in books, um, people always kind of leave out the very, you know, human sense of isolation that people mm -hmm. must feel. Right. And then the like shell, you have to like grow. Right. Right. To, right. To handle it. Even though that was the only life that she knew she could see it happening to other kids. You know, they went home and they had families. To, yeah. No, I, I, I understand. Well, and she had her Native American upbringing, which made her distanced from both the African-American and white society. Mm -hmm. So she had no, you know, natural group. And the right. school boarded her with a prominent white family on the white side of town. So she is in this lovely middle ground of nowhere land. Yeah. Unique in her situation. The family that she boarded with was the family of Reverend John Keep, who was an older gentleman, even at the time. He was a Oberlin College trustee, and he had up to 12 girls boarding at his house. She was the only woman of color that lived there. Now, while the school did accept women, they didn't educate them exactly the same. The women would attend the young ladies' preparatory department first and then graduate into the young ladies' department. So they had a separate 
path of education than any of the men there did. This is what you got. I mean, like you took this or you took nothing. Right. She studied algebra, rhetoric, public speaking was on everyone's mind during this era, wasn't Mm -hmm. it? Um, How did everyone deal with the fear? I guess you just had to buck up because no one cared. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Botany in this, this is the same era where Emily Dickinson was was uh, introduced to botany and started making her um, pressed flower books. By the way, botany's in the air also. That would be a herbarium? Yes, it would be. Uh, Literature, languages, and religion, of course. It was a rigorous and thorough education of its kind. I will tell you in a stroke of irony that Mary was kicked out of her geometry class um, (laughs) because she couldn't seem to fathom it and they didn't want her to fail and they moved her over to algebra. I'm like, the irony for someone who is later famous for her three-dimensional figures. Right. just saying. (laughs) Hilarious. There you go. Um, So despite the liberality of this institution, it was, as I said before, an island in the middle of swirling prejudice, just like the college in New York had been. And Mary was subject in town to the bigotry and misogyny we'd unfortunately expect to see, although she did have the protection of both the college and the man and his prominence that she boarded with. So... Uh, You know, it wasn't this ideal floating upon clouds everywhere. She did have to hear it. Right. He respected her. I mean, it wasn't like he was just tolerating her. She was well-liked on campus. So she had a lot of allies when she was on campus. And unlike the other school that she had attended to, Oberlin was built on donated land. So that town had nothing to do with it. You know, they had no nothing in there except, you know, stink eyes looking at the school thinking, oh, great, what's going to happen up there? (laughs) Just you wait. That's right. Basically, Oberlin is Portlandia. (laughs) If you know what I mean, like it's just this ideal location kind of in the middle of an otherwise conventional place. Mm hmm. At 17, Mary graduated to Oberlin College, which is on the same land with different buildings, similar to the way the elementary, middle, and high schools are in your town, Miss Susan. Mm, they are. Is there a college at the end? There is not. Oh, <laughs> there's okay. a football field. <laughs> well, there you go. That's America. That's right. Although she stayed with the same family, um, didn't move locations, her financial circumstances had really changed because of Samuel's financial situation. And since he had hit it big, he made certain that his sister had the finest clothes. He gave her gifts of jewelry and a generous allowance. Which is nice when you are around your friends and can be comfortable, but not so great when you're walking through town and, you know, people think, why is she wearing that? Yeah. You know, the, the evil people. Mary asked friends and teachers to begin to call her Edmonia, which was her middle name. And so we will begin to call her Edmonia. She had had drawing lessons as far back as the New York College. And art wasn't necessarily so popular of a course of study there at Oberlin, who were more serious-minded. In fact, this was their mission statement for, as you recall, Susan said, the Young Ladies Program of Study. And I quote, We give young ladies the thorough mental discipline and a special training which will qualify them for teaching and other duties of their sphere. 
i.e. motherhood, which was too saucy to talk about out loud. Right. Motherhood. Isn't entirely that far off from what, you know, Emily Dickinson's Mount Holyoke was hoping to turn their women into. Yeah. But Edmonia was drawn to art. Oh, my gosh. You did not. (laughs) I didn't mean to, actually. Yes, you did. Oh, yes, you did. (laughs) Uh, And showed serious talent, I will tell you. So that's what she decided to pursue. And I just want to tell you that no less a luminary than Frederick Douglass himself admired her work, but advised her she'd better go east if she wanted to get more training because Oberlin was not it. incident occurred when Edmonia was only 18 years old that changed the course of her life forever. Edmonia had been in Oberlin for about three years, so she was pretty established. And the actual details of the event aren't known completely. But here's what we do know. Edmonia and two fellow boarders had plans to go sleigh riding with some gentleman callers on this fine, snowy winter day. But before they went... They had a glass of mulled wine, glugwein, glog, there's lots of names for it, hot bread <laughs> wine with cinnamon and nutmeg and allspice in it is my recipe. Oranges if you have them, but mm-hmm. if it's snowy and you don't want to call Instacart, you can do it without <laughs> the oranges. Just letting you know. Out in the snow with their dates, Edmonia's two roommates, for these ladies also probably boarded with Reverend Keep, they fell deathly deathly ill almost immediately and the doctors who examined them determined that they had been poisoned so all eyes turned to Edmonia as the two white girls lay close to death their families demanded justice the scandal grew a newspaper headline read mysterious affair at Oberlin suspicion of foul play two young ladies poisoned the suspect under arrest This is exactly what most of those townsfolk were waiting for. They had been spending years with a close eye on Oberlin, waiting for something like this to happen so that they could say, I told you so, we cannot mix races. This is what is going to happen. Well, the family she lived with and the administration at Oberlin convinced the authorities to let her be at liberty until her trial, trial, you guys, Under their recognizance, but the anger and suspicion in town grew and grew. Number one, I thought all of you had a strict temperance policy. So why is red wine in the picture? Where did they get it? Number two, why are unchaperoned young ladies out with dudes? Although they didn't use the word dudes, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Number, (laughs) Number three, the poison in question was reputed to be cantharides, also known as Spanish fly, a reputed slash known aphrodisiac. It's the makings of a modern true crime podcast. It has sexual intrigue and illicit substances and defying of cultural norms and 
I can't find anyone who asserts or denies that it was Spanish fly or that they were purposely poisoned. Um, I had a hard time imagining where, if that was Spanish fly, she would have gotten it. And I had an easy time imagining that if I had not had a life of hot mulled wine, I might have had two mugs of it and then thrown up. Well, but would you have been sick for days and days? I just want to tell you that was in use as a medicinal. Yeah, and it was used by the Marquis de Sade as a form of torture and death. <laughs> so it's. I mean, its medicinal use may have, in fact, killed George Washington. The more mm-hmm. you know. But, I mean, <laughs> probably it was the fact that they had bled him until he only had 60% of his blood left. That would be that another death. candidate for his yeah. death <laughs> direct line to death right there yeah yeah um, okay, so, so if you if you were a young woman caught on a sleigh ride that you weren't supposed to be on and you were already throwing up and that the attention was drawn away from what you had done and was suddenly placed on someone else you would maybe throw that person even farther under the bus by exaggerating your illness for even longer just milking it. I I don't know what happened. Maybe I've listened to too many true crime pro- podcasts and I can imagine it happening that way, but I, I don't know. It just seems so likely. Yeah. I just don't know what spice. I even looked up, could it have been fake cinnamon cassia, which in large doses is poisonous? Like right. what? I mean, Spanish fly seems like a very targeted thing. Yeah. For well, the press, but whatever. You yeah. Know. Oh, it's one of those words you could just like, you know. Yeah. It's kind of like Spanish fly. Oh, it was Spanish fly. You know, let's print that. There's a headline. Well, um, she was represented by a black lawyer named John Mercer Langston. Great uncle, in fact, to the writer Langston Hughes. One of the first black men to serve in Congress later. Prominent. The father of one of her, quote, victims actually shot at the lawyer. And the sentiment around town seemed to be how dare this ungrateful blank attack respectable white women in this way and bring shame upon their house and shame upon the institution. And just, you know, people's sentiments fed on each other with undirected rage until One night, just after dark, Edmonia was going out to the privy. It's in the yard. There's no indoor plumbing. You have to go outside, despite the known dangers. And she was kidnapped. She was dragged into a nearby field. She was beaten. She was stripped. She was left in the snowy field for dead. And whatever happened in between those things probably happened, if you know what I mean. We don't know exactly what happened. Obviously, she would never talk about uh, the details of the assault, but she was definitely assaulted and definitely left for dead without any clothes on. This is a very tiny woman. She was like four feet tall. Even if she only had one attacker, she wouldn't have been able to fight him off. I assume it was a him. I think it was a whole bunch of hymns. And they, of course, missed her at home. Um, It doesn't take that long to go to the bathroom, even if you have digestive distress. And so after a time, a search party was gathered. The town bell began to ring to gather some search party. And a local businessman was the one to find her. He was shocked 
that she was, and I quote, mangled, bruised, and unclothed. She had bled into the snow in a scene of carnage. Her trial was delayed. Okay, small mercy. No one made any attempt, by the way, to search for her attackers, to identify them, to bring them to justice, to even talk about them. Uh, Her broken collarbone was explained in the press as an ice skating incident. She had to be carried into the courtroom for her trial and won her case largely because her lawyer asked the court, where's the proof of poisoning? You have samples of the contents of these women's stomachs anywhere? Let's let's have that. Let's investigate that. How can you prove it was Spanish fly? How can you prove there was evil intent, you know? Let alone, how could you prove that it was Edmonia who administered it? Correct. And they had nothing. They had no proof. And charges were dropped. And her name was officially cleared. But anyone who had been angry about the case before was still angry. Her presence at Oberlin was causing a lot of friction. A lot of friction for the institution and for the town. Edmonia tried to get back to life as normal, going to classes and you know, pouring herself into her art. The earliest drawing that has been found of hers was created about this time, and it is beautiful. It's a um, drawing of Urania, the daughter of Zeus, and it's based on a statue, and it is lovely. And she created that about this time, but she couldn't get away from the reputation that she had not earned, but had clung to her. Almost exactly a year later, Edmonia was accused of stealing some art supplies from a professor. And although her name was cleared from that accusation also, in fact, I think I read that they may have actually found the misplaced items in question. Her innocence didn't matter. The situation was difficult. And the director of the ladies program at Oberlin did not allow her to register for her last semester. She is one semester from graduation and has been prevented from getting a degree from Oberlin. On that advice from Frederick Douglass, she decided that she was going to leave Ohio and with her brother's financial and emotional support, she first went to New York and then moved on to Boston, trying to pursue a career as an artist. Abolitionist friends back at Oberlin wrote letters of introduction for her to a man named William Lloyd Garrison, publisher of The Liberator ardent abolitionist, staunch early proponent of um, women's rights. We may have mentioned his name during our Elizabeth Cady Stanton episode because she was impressed at him. He had been invited to a conference where the conference refused to seat the women delegates. And he said, they don't sit, I don't sit. And he didn't participate. And she really noticed that Elizabeth Cady Stanton did. So that's that guy. That's he is willing to be a stone in people's shoe and he doesn't care. Mm -hmm. You know, he was sort of the gateway to the club. Now, this was a club that she was a um, adjacent member of already. Remember, she's gone to schools that were founded by abolitionists for her whole life. So she is already part of the abolitionist community in in some ways. So gaining entry wasn't as difficult as if she had just been, you know, walking in off the street. 
Yes. Well, she was taken up by a few abolitionist women as well as Mr. Garrison. I'm sorry to say, I'm sorry to say that in reading about their relationship with her, especially a woman named Mary Child, it almost seems like they wanted her to be a mascot for their cause rather than a human being with Mm -hmm. her own desires. So Good intentions are one thing, but they wanted her to mind them. Mm-hmm. Right. And no, Edmonia I, wanted to only mind herself. No, that's because a good she's way a grown-up person, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, there's that. I mean, they they had perhaps good intentions, but a lot of prejudice was simmering under the surface as well. Edmonia was later to say that she was inspired to switch from two dimensions to sculpture when she stood in front of a statue of Benjamin Franklin outside of Old City Hall in Boston right after she arrived. And people keep doubting this origin story, but it sounds just as plausible as my interest in history stemming from one chapter in Laura Ingalls Wilder. Yes, it absolutely does. Although I believe that the article that that came from kind of was painting her to be this almost illiterate, very poor young lady who looked at Benjamin Franklin with awe and wanted to become a sculptor so she could create a man just like him, you know. Okay, not, I see yeah, what you're not nece- Yeah, I don't know that that was something that she actually said or if it was just something that she actually allowed because a lot of the... I don't want to say the program, but a lot of the way that she was being treated in the abolitionist press, she was getting a lot of it, was as, I don't, a figurehead in some ways. And however they portrayed her, she said, fine, publicity is publicity. You know, say whatever you want. Uh, yeah, is I, that wrong? I do, I, no, no, no. I do see what you're saying because I did refer to earlier. I, you know, I guess I used the term mascot, mm-hmm. and that might be a little, that might be a little much. But yes, they, they wanted her to fit into the story they were telling. And she's more like, well, all right. Yeah. Yeah. And it also helped clear her and distance her from what happened in Oberlin. Yeah. You know, no longer was she like this, you know, the negative aspects of it. Suddenly she was this up and coming, talented black woman who wanted to create a career that had been denied to her for generations. And look what we can help her do. So two things could be simultaneously true. She could have been inspired by that statue to switch from drawing to sculpture. Mm -hmm. And people who doubt that that was her origin story are legitimately doubting it because of the way that that was portrayed as I'm gobsmacked by the great man, Benjamin Franklin, which was probably not true. You know what? I've completed the circle in my mind. When we go to Boston in October on our field trip, we should go to that statue and contemplate Edmonia Lewis. (laughs) <laughs> I have like, you can't see me. I have this dreamy look in my eyes, <laughs> looking off into the distance. Edmonia tried to get some official training, but sculptor after sculptor, men rejected her, rejected her. And finally, a sort of crotchety artist named Edward Brackett handed her some clay and gave her an audition. I, that's the only thing I can call it. Make a hand out of this and bring it back and I will see if you're bothering me. Or if you're worth my time, not going to talk to you till I see the hand. And then he (laughs) told her to talk to the hand, you know. Um, So she fretted and worked on this new medium. I mean, clay is not something she'd worked with before. 
and she eventually passed his test. He showed her how to do portrait medallions, which is basically like halfway to 3D. It's like two and a half D. (laughs) It's flat on the back, rounded on the front, suitable for sale to the middle class market, pieces of art. And he allowed her to copy his work, his, his 3D work in this format, and also to borrow photographs to work from. And he taught her how to make her own tools, something that would be very important in this career. And he gave her some marketing advice create work of people who are famous and in the news and you'll sell it. Right. He even set her up with some studio space. Now, they did not stay best friends forever. They had some falling out, probably on the same lines as do what I say. No, thank you. But thanks for Mm -hmm. your help. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. Like Mm -hmm. he was already on the edge of like, why are people talking to me anyway? Um, (laughs) So, I mean, I I wouldn't read too much into the fact that they had a big falling out, but Edmonia broke through with a piece she sculpted to memorialize a fallen local hero who was the son of two powerful abolitionists. He was a white man who had accepted the command over the famous 54th Massachusetts, a quote, colored regiment, which included the two sons of Frederick Douglass among them. They were only the second such regiment, and people love to read about their heroism in battle. This man, Robert Shaw, when he was killed in action, it sent a shockwave through the city. No less than Courier and Ives saw fit to create a lithograph immortalizing his death. Edmonia had seen young Colonel Shaw and his regiment marching out to fight in that fateful battle, and he'd actually fought against the United States government for equal pay for his soldiers and ultimately was buried with his men. The Confederates who had killed him thought that was like hilarious to put a white man in a mass grave with a bunch of quote colored soldiers. But his parents thought, you know what? That is actually a fitting place for our son and and he would be honored to be there. It turned on them sort of. And Edmonia, following the advice of her curmudgeonly mentor, was inspired to create a bust of this man, a bust of Colonel Shaw. Those other people who wanted her to follow what they were saying were suggesting that perhaps she not focus on such a huge hero. I mean, a big hero in their community, because for whatever reason, they didn't think that she had the chops or her chops were the wrong color. They didn't want her to sculpt this, but she did. She created a masterpiece. It's reminiscent of a Greek statue of a hero, all white marble, no clothing, sort of timeless and powerful. And if you were to look at a photo of this man, it is a wonderful likeness. His father came to see it, climbing the stairs to look at the portrait of his son, She had carved underneath, martyr for freedom. He looked for a long, long time. He just stood there in silence and turned to her. And, you know, men are stoic. He asked for photographs to be made of it for him. Please, please take photographs of this and bring them to my house. His daughter, the man's sister, asked Edmonia to have a copy made for her, for her possession in marble, and paid her for it. They loved it. His family loved it and thought it was suitable tribute to their loved one. 
And they gave her permission to sell both medallions, copies, and photos of it. She sold 100 copies at $15 each, which is $330 today. So, you know, doing no real math, you're looking at $33,000. And she also created a bust of Sergeant William Carney, who in that same battle had rescued the American flag after his colonel was killed. And this bust was much copied, although not as lucrative financially. Well, he wasn't as well known. Despite the people who were talking behind her back and saying she shouldn't be doing these things, she really became the darling of the abolitionist art collector community, which was surprisingly large. I had no idea. Mm -hmm. You know, you think of abolitionists just being, you know, doing that work. But there was a lot of art collectors, which makes sense since they had money. Here in Boston, she was praised as that colored girl artist, protege of a staunch abolitionist, that Maria Child we talked about before, who alternated in talking her up in the press and demanding obedience. A well-connected high society lady named Anna Waterston wrote and published a poem called Edmonia Lewis. And the subtitle is The Young Colored Woman Who Has Successfully Modeled the Bust of Colonel Shaw. Okay, so... And the poem ends with these lines. Tis fitting that a daughter of the race whose chains are breaking should receive a gift so rare as genius, neither power nor place, fashion or wealth, pride, custom, caste or hue can arrogantly claim what God doth lift above these chances and bestows on few. So love the compliments. Thanks for the money. Edmonia was popular. She was taking on all kinds of commissions. And she did one, and I'll try to see if I can put the pictures in the show notes, of a woman named Maria Chapman. She was another uh, Boston-based abolitionist. And the bust that she did of Mrs. Chapman looks exactly like the photograph of her. And yet, when Maria Childs saw this statue, she wrote to a friend, quote, It's taken from life is a tolerable likeness with her refined beauty left out. Meow. Edmonia not only could look at a person's photograph and pull out the elements that would make a statue look exactly like them, she could see what the person looked like in its base elements. She could also see the base elements of what was happening to her. She was getting all this praise, but she knew the truth. She said, quote, some praise me because I'm a colored girl and I don't want that kind of praise. I would rather you point out my defects for that will teach me something. So she's starting to catch on to what they're using her for, quite honestly. And I think the final straw really was when Maria Child, who was supposed to be her biggest supporter, told her you should just get a job and do sculpture in your spare time. And she like sort of cracked, Edmonia did. Enough condescension. You know what? I am going to go. She decided to move to Europe where expat artists and writers were already operating and where her brother, who had experienced it on his gold-funded grand tour years before, had said that colored people do not face the same obstacles there as in America, or at least not to the same degree. I mean, it's not a bed of roses, mind you, but it's still better than here, a lesson that Josephine Baker also learned 70 years later. It's not awesome, 
but it's certainly not got the same um, baggage. A local merchant helped her get her passport. In the margin, you can see it. There's photographs of this passport application. I'm I'm just going to stop you because this is where there's actually documentation of her. I was so excited when I got to this. Yes. Go on. (laughs) But you can see that he wrote, Emma Lewis is a black girl sent by subscription to Italy, having displayed great talent as a sculptor. Like, why does that need to be there? Does it? I mean, maybe I did need to be there. Maybe the passport company was not about it unless there was some kind of reason. Reason? Mm. So, Mm. I mean, I guess I shouldn't ascribe to the merchant any dismissive tendencies. He might just be trying to ease the paperwork through. Right. And it may have worked in the same way that a letter of introduction might work. Like, dear United States government. Edmonia had an entire sheaf of letters of introduction to prominent people all over Europe. She made time to see the cities of London and Paris. In Florence, she was taken under the wings of famous male sculptors who took the time to um, help her with technique and practicalities like, and I quote, get the money up front for any commission in marble. (laughs) I'm like, oh, well, but these are like super famous guys in America who took the time to help her willingly, unlike her first mentor who was really, I just don't know who I would even make him like, like maybe the um, badger in the wind in the willows, just like (laughs) reluctantly helpful. (laughs) Right, right, right. Well, you know what? Would she have learned more if someone had been just super guiding to her? Or would she, she seems like someone who likes to learn things her way. Uh, And so if he just like said, here, try this. And she worked her own way out would be more fitting for her, given her personality, I think. But we're talking about a 21-year-old woman here. A 21-year-old woman of mixed race who has just done a grand tour of Europe. By herself, again, we don't know because she never kept a diary. Were there friends? Were there correspondents that she poured her heart out to? Perhaps her brother, I mean, would be it. But we just don't know. And I hope she had someone. I hope she did. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, people are people and you you need connection, but we just don't know. Mm. Um, She moved on to Rome, home of sculpture, source of marble, magnet for writers like Harriet Beecher Stowe and Nathaniel Hawthorne and William Makepeace Thackeray, writer of Vanity Fair, George Eliot, who is a lady that we have not yet covered. Henry James wrote, here I am in the eternal city. At last, I live. (laughs) Like... (laughs) And Edmonia might have thought the same thing, having been almost immediately folded into this salon of women artists. And in Rome and Italy in general, she was close to the source of marble. You know, Carrera marble is from the Florence area. 
So she's close to the source of her materials and she's enveloped into this community. This is a great place for her to be. Henry James wrote of this group of women. He called them that strange sisterhood of American lady sculptors. Henry James also wrote patronizingly, if I must say, one of the sisterhood was a negress whose color, picturesquely contrasting with that of her material, was the pleading agent of her fame. Bye. Bye, Henry James. <laughs> Don't like well, you. I think she kind of got her own dig on the society that she came from when she said, quote, I was practically driven to Rome in order to obtain the opportunities for art culture and to find the social atmosphere where I was not constantly reminded of my color. The land of liberty had no room for a colored sculptor. And then Henry James tried to go over there. <laughs> And bring it on over there, too. And she wasn't going to have it. Well, yeah, it really wasn't all pasta and Prosecco in Italy. You know, <laughs> we think of it as that dreamy situation. You know, people are people. And this was also the Victorian era. Edmonia was there. She knew that she was always going to be a student. She always had to keep learning. She always had to keep improving her art. But as a sculptor, she would need to know anatomy and opportunities for her to learn anatomy were limited. She couldn't go to art classes with nude models. Uh, she didn't have the connections to get into uh, medical schools, to go look at cadavers, you know, something. So what she did was copy the masters, which was a pretty common method of sculpting. You Kind of like on American Idol, you know, you take a classic song and you kind of tweak it just enough to make it your own. And that's what she was doing with some of her sculptures. The one I'm thinking of is Moses um, done by Michelangelo, which was very famous and quite lovely. But that's how she had to learn anatomy. Well, even now, people sketch in art galleries. It's not like she was doing something mm -hmm. that's forbidden or whack or anything. I mean, no. And then she was selling them, though. Oh, <laughs> Don't get me wrong. It wasn't just like a practice sculpture. But I think if people will buy it, then that's fine. I mean, they know you're not purporting that it is the work of Michelangelo. Like, right. No, 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 not at all. Yeah. Like, yeah, like I said, you just American Idol it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So obviously I watch all the trash TV. <laughs> Her main mentor in this sisterhood of artists was a sculptor named Hattie Hosmer, who one day we should cover. She mm -hmm. was an athlete. She was an adventurer. She was a studier of anatomy whose rich papa actually got her into a medical school to study such things as muscles and uh, ligaments and movement. She was a sculpture of large-scale neoclassical works in marble. She got Edmonia a studio near hers, a studio that actually used to belong to a renowned famous sculptor. It's kind of like, ooh, let's have the ambiance and, and perhaps his ghost will be here. She introduced Edmonia to everyone who was anyone, basically lent her good name in the service of Edmonia's career. Another thing that Edmonia learned because of her new mentor friend, Hattie Hosmer, was that in Italy, 
a lot of times the final sculpture, because the sculpture is made, there's an idea, okay? And then there's a sketch and then they make it out of clay. And then that is a prototype. And from that final prototype, the marble is carved. But that final step, the carving of the marble is often done by skilled Italian artisans in Rome. But Hattie Hosmer had been accused of not doing her own work because she hired these artisans just like most of the male sculptors in the area. So Edmonia wanted to skip that part, just be above board as possible. So she was one of the few sculptors who actually chiseled her own marble. She did the whole step herself because she wanted it to be known that this was all her own work. Yeah, she didn't want to be accused of being nothing but a PR front for Mm -hmm. abolitionists here in Europe also. She began where she started with portrait heads, uh, including the likes of Abraham Lincoln, but really leveled up to level 10 Mm -hmm. um, with a grouping called Freedwoman and Her Child, and only a few years later produced Forever Free, which depicted two enslaved people wearing broken chains. And I do not understand how people see in this three-dimensional way. I think you, do you have it or you don't? Oh, no, I agree. I can't, when you look at statues that look like fabric and you're like, that's rock? How do you do that? I I don't have those brain cells. Well, so she worked in marble and also sculpted in clay here at first. She made at least two versions at first in clay, of Hagar from, um, let's see, you might remember Hagar in the Bible as an enslaved Egyptian woman who bore her master's son and then was banished into the desert with her child. It's not an awesome story. And Edmonia said, and I quote, I have a strong sympathy for all women who have struggled and suffered. She also created numerous smaller pieces to sell to visitors who liked to pop by on their own grand tours. Artist studios were so hot right now. So bohemian. (laughs) Everyone loved to see her in her mannish dress. She had um, was famous for a red like beret like hat and a purple velvet jacket. I myself have a set of purple velvet jackets. I know. I know. I've been on the TV in my purple velvet jacket. Um, But anyway, so she wore blowers at school. This wasn't new. Remember, she'd worn mannish dress at school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, her studio was so popular that it was in the tour books, like the guidebooks that said, you need to visit, you know, the Parthenon and all this stuff. You also need to visit Edmonia Lewis's studio at the Palazzo Barberini, you know. Yeah, she was featured in a famous series of books called Murray's Handbooks for Travelers that people would buy before they, you know, set off on their grand tour. And like, can you believe that, that her studio Mm -hmm. was included there? That's amazing. Yeah, well, and then she could sell pieces to people who came in, but she could also take the more lucrative commissions Mm. of people (laughs) who came in. So, yes, she's doing sculptures of women of color. She's also doing a lot of sculptures of indigenous women. She began a series of major works inspired by Longfellow's epic poem, The Song of Hiawatha, which I can tell you, my grandma Roth 
and her fellow students were required to memorize large portions of and recite in school, I would be willing to bet, though I haven't looked it up, that it was in one of the McGuffey readers. Like so many people of that generation can, I mean, recite large portions of that. The way that everyone in my era can sing you the preamble to the (laughs) Constitution because of Schoolhouse Rock. I mean, the Song of Hiawatha was like a cultural touchstone all across Mm -hmm. America. Everyone knew this poem. Now she's following the advice she got a long time ago before she had made that bust of Shaw. Find something that's in the zeitgeist and roll with that and that will sell. And that's exactly what she did. I mean, for years and years, children could say by the shores of Gitchigumi, by the shining big seawater, you know, mm-hmm. it's a problematic work, ladies and gentlemen. If you were to go back and read it, it is super sanitized. The noble savages and um, kind of, you know how we were talking about how the railroad finally got to Niagara Falls and that's why everybody was coming there. Well, the railroad was expanding across the West and sort of ruining up the last of the mythology. You know, everyone assumed that Native Americans would now be over. That whole mythology, oh, in the past, these people used to live here and they used to blah, blah, blah. And they're so romantic, but they saw their ways and and came to Jesus in the end. I mean, literally, that's the end of this thing. It's not over, but that was like what was in the air. Mm -hmm. And that's why that became so popular, the whole romance of the past. So she, Edmonia, sculpted Hiawatha and his love, Minnehaha. Um, She had several works. One was called The Marriage of Hiawatha and also The Old Arrow Maker and His Daughter, all of which featured Native American figures sculpted in marble. It's super radical, not unprecedented, but but very radical. The man himself, Mr. Longfellow, (laughs) came to Rome. And I am angry that none of her friends in the sisterhood bothered to introduce her. That makes me feel angry. So here she is skulking around at receptions, sketching him on the DL and going back to work on a sculpture of him in clay based on her lightning sketches, which is a talent I also wish I had, lightning sketches. (laughs) There's a guy that does TikToks where he sits across from people on the subway and Mm -hmm. in the distance of a subway ride, he captures them to the life. And I'm sure that's what Edmonia was doing, but just their faces when they are handed their drawings because this man doesn't keep them. Mm. Why would he? But it's so. So anyway, she's in here lightning sketching him from behind plants and columns and whatnot. And the brother of Longfellow came over to her studio and was blown away by the likeness he was seeing. I mean, of all the people that know him, the brother would know him the best. And he went and got his brother, the man himself, who came and sat for his bust in person which is pretty cool. And guess what was surrounding him in the studio? Hiawatha, Minnehaha, and other friends sculpted in marble. How weird is that? Like you Mm -hmm. show up to a studio and this woman has like immortalized your characters Mm -hmm. and they're sitting around in front of you. It's sort of cool. I also am so mad though about the friends who didn't think to introduce her. I, you know, they were kind of keeping her at arm's length like you know your friend is into him right how is this not coming up i don't know i feel like 
they're letting her down a little bit. And it makes me think she was kind of on the fringes, on the outside looking in of that sisterhood. As much as we like to say, oh, the sisterhood of sculptors, like, mm, right. they can't be bothered. Right. I, I, I wonder how much um, professional jealousy played a part in that. They knew she was working on all these pieces based on his work. So they knew how good they were. They knew how they were going to sell. So if she got a hold of the man himself, you know, what could possibly happen? You know, they're Um, looking out for their own careers, too. I guess that's true. That's kind of selfish, though. But, you know, I guess I get that motivation. But, you know, when word of these Longfellow-based statuary leaked out in the press, and I want to quote, There have been no happier illustrations of Longfellow's most original poem that were ever made than these. So, you know, she's transcended the Mean Girls anyway, and she's making it for herself. Edmonia welcomed visitors and journalists, even though she knew they were drawn to her by the novelty of her heritage. It's like bummer, but a good hook. She thought, (laughs) use what you have. Um, she became sort of an entertainer, weaving stories of running wild in the forest, of untamed youth, of inheriting the free spirits of her mother's people. Well, yeah, she was branding herself. And that's which... what makes it a little hard for historians to go back <laughs> no, because there's a lot of embroidery. So she also worked in embroidery. <laughs> uh, here's a little brush with a former subject that I can't prove happened except for real estate records, but whatever. Louisa May Alcott and her sister May, who became Amy in the books, stayed at a house on the same street as Edmonia's studio at the same time. Did they go by? Dang it. Who knows? <laughs> I hope oh, so. come on. They had to have. I mean, they're from Boston. They uh, had know, ran in the same, you know, circles. Well, who did go by? The composer, Franz Liszt. And a whole other group of notables. Her star kept rising and rising. She was getting art shows. She was getting commissions. And some of her commissions were equal in 2022 dollars to nearly a million dollars to sculpt, not Hiawatha, but to sculpt these people who wanted to hire her services. Despite all of her work, though, Edmonia seemed to be in relatively constant debt. Marble was expensive. and. Edmonia didn't always heed the warnings about getting a patron to front her on the marble, you know, plaster you can have on credit, clay, no problem. Because, you know, if you don't pay, I can just smash it with my fist, you know, like <laughs> and redo. So she was a little bit, she was like, it was a little bit of a house of cards. Another notable stepped in to save her financially, kind of at the last minute. John Patrick Crichton Stewart, the third Marquess of Butte, who swooped in and made several large purchases and saved her bacon. She was also selling to art buyers in the United States. She had made several trips to deliver sculptures or get commissions over the years. It was kind of, she left on a one-way ticket But she had to keep going back because that's where a huge segment of her customer base was in the United States. She had been known also to sculpt people who hadn't made a commission and to kind of show up. I mean, that's not literally, but kind of show up with the work saying, hey, would you like to buy this beautiful sculpture that looks just like you? She was marketing. She was always hustling, always hustling. 
So the coverage of Edmonia and of her work was ramping up on both sides of the ocean, though I will say the focus was still on her heritage, even from Frederick Douglass, who said, (laughs) 10 years have passed and the half-Indian maiden has gained a reputation which many artists might envy, but has not, we trust, reached the highest round of the ladder which it has been her good fortune to climb. She is now revisiting her native land, bringing with her some of the works of her chisel. He also says, We are aware that in Italy, Miss Lewis has enjoyed some advantages on account of the accident of her complexion, has met encouragement where she would not had she been white. Uh, uh Uh-huh. I don't know. Hattie Hosmer was white and she was pretty popular. Hmm. Well, he said, we know this was the case in Boston, but we are still painfully aware that she has suffered many discouragements at the hand of her own fellow countrymen and women. What she needs is the assistance of her own race, the patronage, the favorable mention of colored members of Congress when appropriations for artistic purposes are afoot. She could certainly not execute worse effigies than some of the statues that are supposed to adorn our capital. (laughs) well okay i i started out angry but i actually kind of like that yeah (laughs) uh although a fluent talker when the theme is such to arouse her enthusiasm she has something of the habitual quietude and stoicism of the indian race said a article she has a trace of the sadness of both races in her manner despite her assured artistic success So she does come back to America to exhibit and sell copies from now on. Um, For a while, she came back yearly and then it kind of went, you know, further and further apart. She sat while she was in Chicago for photographs that were called carte visite. You know, can't buy a statue, not in your budget, don't wish to pack something so heavy in your trunk. Here's an economical and light souvenir. She was an early proponent of exiting through the gift shop. (laughs) But that's why we can see so many photos of her today. We won't go into every trip. Just it was wheeling, dealing, feasting, and, and fundraising because she had a major project on deck. America was about to have its 100th birthday. And as a celebration, it was going to hold its first World's Fair in Philadelphia. The 1876 Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia. Where have we heard this? What other statue is there? The Statue of Liberty, her hand and her torch. Which had you exiting through the gift shop. That's funny. Literally. Yeah. (laughs) So Bartholdi could only get Lady Liberty's torch there, but Edmonia got a whole woman and not just any woman. She got Cleopatra there. Edmonia went to history to get a model for Cleopatra. She went to the museums and looked at coins of the time with Cleopatra's image on them to see what she looked like. And she sculpted out of marble a five and a half foot tall sculpture, which, remember, is a foot and a half taller than she is, called The Death of Cleopatra. And it's Cleopatra regally sitting on her throne holding the snake still, but in the moment that she died. So her head just kind of lolled backwards just a little bit. That's the moment that she decided to sculpt. That's what she wanted to capture. And not her dead already with her hand on the floor, but her dying regally in that very moment. And also her drapage 
was kind of showing a little nipple, which... <laughs> Do we have to say that? That's pretty no. common for Cleopatra. If you look at I... any death of Cleopatra, okay. there is boobies everywhere. That's true. <laughs> it, well, that did cause quite a sensation, though, <laughs> to have that exposed at the exposition. It took her four years to create the statue. It was 3,000 pounds of marble that she brought over to Philadelphia. People were amazed at the um, lifelike and very human expression of pain on the great queen's face. The feeling of movement, the feeling of the poison just having taken hold of her. Um, her hand hadn't even been able to relax yet to let go of the snake that had killed her. It's almost like a photographic representation of a second in time mm -hmm. people were blown away there were over 500 sculptures at this exposition and i quote a newspaper review of it the death of cleopatra excites more admiration and gathers larger crowds around it than any other work of art in the whole collection in memorial hall it was exhibited with this brightly colored fabric canopy over it which i don't think it is anymore but it added to the lifelike aspect of it. It was almost like a special effect. Right. Kind she of like, you know, it. yeah, kind of like how, you know, the, that Degas statue always has the fabric skirt of the ballerina. And it's a little bit like, ooh, you know, oh, <laughs> like mixed media. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Edmonia yeah. is still only 32 years of age and she has created a masterpiece. So here's a statue of a woman of color created by a woman of color, at an event where Frederick Douglass himself had a hard time entering into the opening ceremony, which he was invited to participate in, sitting next to the president of the United States because of his color. And Black women didn't have it any easier either. They were invited to be on women's committees for the Women's Pavilion, but they were told that they could only work with other Black women. They could not work with any white women. And they said, forget that, and walked off, creating a huge stir. And the white women kind of had to backpedal and, oh, no, I'm sorry, you misunderstood us, and welcome them back in. But it happened. So, you know, it's not like, yes, welcome this Black artist to our country that's so changed. It hadn't changed enough. And this is the North. I just want to say, we keep thinking there's some magical dividing line where everyone's awesome. Mm -hmm. um, that's all I'm saying. You know what? And I've, I fell down a tiny little rabbit hole because we use the term woman of color a lot. And we just think it's something that's, you know, in modern vernacular. It actually originated in the 1977 National Women's Conference in Houston. And it was created by the non-white groups to differentiate themselves at the conference and to have a larger voice. That was the same one that was covered in the Mrs. America, the Phyllis Schlafly series that conference. Mm -hmm. So it goes way back to 1977. And I just wanted to, I don't know, I thought that was interesting that something kind of like suffragette, you know, they created it themselves and as a right. voice of power. I don't know. Yeah, I like it. Well, this statue, The Death of Cleopatra, was such a hit that when the Centennial Exposition was over, the statue was transported to Chicago the following year to equally great acclaim. Unfortunately, no one offered to buy it. And at over two tons, it's very impractical to ferry Cleopatra back to Europe. So Edmonia placed her in storage in Chicago. 
I, <laughs> okay, so I had a conflict here. So I didn't know whether I wanted to tell you about what happened to Stone Cleopatra versus heading on with Edmonia's story. But let's leave Cleopatra in storage for a minute and move on with her creator. Through the 1880s, her work slowed, as did her travel. Notably, though, both of these things came together when she met Frederick Douglass again, and not only did a bust of him, Edmonia accompanied him and his wife on their journey to Naples. But the 1890s, she's even less in the public eye. The center of the art world was moving to France, and Edmonia moved with it. And the main thing she created during the 1890s is a bronze statue of a previous subject of this podcast. Thank you for letting me say this one. <laughs> Edmonia created a bronze bust of Phyllis Wheatley to present and show at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. We're back. With great relief, um, we are able to connect this subject with our favorite location in the world um, in time and place. The list of women's sculptures featured in this exhibition was long, and I urge you to go look at the photos of the work in the link we'll give you. Um, for example, Hattie Hosmer and her giant statue of Queen Isabella giving jewels to Columbus to finance his trips to the new world episode 132 was featured quite prominently but if you think about it it's the Colombian exhibition and Isabella is giving jewels to Columbus so it was very natural to be there but so Hattie and Edmonia were both featured at this exhibition and sadly that bust is lost we can't like link you to where it is oh is the Phyllis Wheatley yeah you know what's interesting about that? There are some described and in some cases even photographed pieces of art of Edmonia Lewis's that are someplace. They're someplace. And wait till you hear. I mean, you never know where you're going to find stuff. And um, similar to the way that I want that painting that Carrie Nation put her act through that was <laughs> at one point in a bar and then went nowhere somewhere is probably in an attic. There's probably likely statues of Edmonia Lewis's sitting around places. I would love to watch the Antiques Roadshow when somebody brings up this bronze bust of Phyllis Wheatley, plops it down on the table. <laughs> or there's also, um, she didn't work in bronze a lot, but there's reputed to be um, some bronze statues of Native Americans, like smaller statues that are also missing. Most of her work is missing. Yeah. So I am, um, you know what? I'm going to go back on my statement <laughs> real quick. Okay, during the Columbian Exhibition, the Wheatley statue is what was there, but Cleopatra was also on display. She was on the wrong side of town. Cleopatra had been redeemed from storage. I don't know if the storage place went out of business or just like didn't feel like hosting it anymore. They let it go to a saloon keeper, and it was literally outside of a bar on Clark Street, just mm -hmm. sitting outside as the marker while the Columbian Exposition was going on. You could have seen it had you known to go to a whole right. other part of town. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Her trail did get really fuzzy for the rest of the 1890s. She had moved to Paris, like you said, 
And in the mid-1890s, her brother, who had been living in Bozeman, Montana, he was a big man in town, he passed away and left her an inheritance. So presumably it was large enough that she could have retired and she kind of must have because there's no trail of her except that she did move to England at that point. She never married. She never had any children. Any lovers that she might have had are also a mystery. And despite the fame that she had achieved in her the big years of her career, her style of sculpture, neoclassical sculpture, was falling out of favor. So she was falling out of favor as an artist, and she kind of just drifted into the background. I hope she was having fun. I hope she was living her best life. She was asked once by a reporter, are you married? And she said, no, wait, yes, I am wedded to my art. And that's mm-hmm. the closest we have as a, a marriage statement. Well, at the age of 63, she checked herself in to the Hammersmith Infirmary in London, writing down her details as Mary Lewis, age 42, shaving 21 years off her age, where she died on September 17th. 1907, purportedly of Bright's disease. She was buried with a simple marker at St. Mary's Roman Catholic Cemetery in Kensal Green in London. In her will, where she had listed herself as a spinster sculptor, she left everything to the parish priest. So Hmm. there was no heirs to give it to, so she gave it to this church. And Just like our friend Emily Dickinson, after she died, there was a whole other drama that surrounded her work as it was in the world. So things got strange for old stone Cleopatra in the years after her creator's death. This sort of notorious... What do we call him? He was called Blind John Condon. He owned racehorses. He was a gambler. One might say some kind of criminal mastermind. Um, We are in Chicago. Organized crime could be a picture. He decided to buy and or strong arm ownership of this statue, which is, of course, of Cleopatra. Um, because his favorite horse, Cleopatra, had died and he wanted to use it as her grave marker. You and I might just buy their pet a little sweater or commission a little painting in memorial of this horse. But instead, (laughs) he installed this giant two-ton statue in front of the grandstand of a racetrack that he owned in the Chicago suburb of Forest Park. Now, in his will, um, he put in the property's deed that that statue was supposed to remain there forever. The real estate became a golf course, statue stayed. And then after that, during World War II, this land became a torpedo manufacturing factory. And then Cleopatra was still there. Hello, as per, you know, directed. (laughs) But then the United States government decided they wanted to build a uh, giant postal distribution center on this property in the early 1970s. And they were like, not about this old will, whatever, come get us. Like, we're going to take this away. It's ridiculous. Doesn't even belong here. They took it away to a storage yard and it just like sat there in a storage yard, just sat there in the open air. As it sat there in a storage yard, just surrounded by excavators and piles of rubble, and it was 
kind of getting flooded because it was in a very low part of the storage yard. Also, it was super heavy and kept sinking into the ground. This local fire inspector on one of his rounds saw this and thought, well, now, wow, isn't that something? He actually paid to have her moved up to higher ground. You know, at least I can't, I don't have anywhere to put it. She was like a white ghost out there, he said. And (laughs) he had it moved to higher ground. And brace yourself for this. He and his son's Boy Scout troop painted it. So it would look decent until somebody came along who'd know better what should be done for her. (laughs) They got a badge for that. I wouldn't be surprised if that was some kid's eagle project. Restoring ancient art. Yay. Well, oh my goodness. So in 1985, the Historical Society of Forest Park took ownership of it. The guy that headed this Historical Society of Forest Park Um, was knowledgeable enough to identify Edmonia Lewis as the probable sculptor. And he reached out to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and anywhere he could think of where there might be experts. And this independent sort of scholar who was working in a biography of Edmonia Lewis sent out kind of a query, like, does anybody have any, I'm, I'm doing some research, does anybody have anything interesting about Edmonia Lewis? And somebody at the Metropolitan Museum of Art goes, wait, this one guy called me. What was he saying? Riffling through the papers in this era before the internet. And she suggested to this author, this researcher, there might be a missing sculpture at this like wasteland in Chicago. Um, Here's the address. (laughs) This story just gets crazy. This author is named Marilyn Richardson. And Marilyn Richardson got on a plane and went to Forest Park and met with the Historical Society. She was taken to a storeroom at a mall (laughs) where there is the death of Cleopatra, the most revered piece of art from the Centennial Exposition of 1876. The prime example of sculpture for America's 100th birthday was sitting there surrounded by the mall's Christmas decorations, old cans of paint, sail banners were draped across her. She was covered in the Boy Scout paint. (laughs) So this was shocking. This was like so shocking. I can't even imagine finding something like this in that state and in that place in the back of a mall. That's that's see see what I mean though. You never know where you're going to find Edmonia Lewis's statues. Seriously, <laughs> you never know if she can be in the back storeroom of a mall covered in Christmas decorations. They can be yeah. anywhere. And this was a big one. So the little ones, who knows? Look at your local thrift stores today. So they contacted some authorities who who finally realized at the Forest Park Historical Society, wait, what do we have? What have we had for all this time? And we didn't realize, well, the Historical Society of Forest Park doesn't have the budget to fix the statue or conserve it or display it or take it any place. And they turned it over to the experts and they only had the, the one photograph. Uh, to guide them, they had to reconstruct a lot of the pieces. The The snake was gone, for one. Um, a lot of her fingers were missing. Her sandals had been um, abraded by time and wind and ice, etc. They got it as close as they could. 
And now Cleopatra is safe at the American Art Museum of the Smithsonian. So she's restored and she's safe and we can all go see her and appreciate her. Marilyn Richardson, gosh, she, I didn't find a book written by her about Edmonia Lewis, although she certainly has done enough as we shall certainly see for Edmonia Lewis. She has written several books. She's a former professor at MIT, certainly very academic, has written a biography notably of Maria W. Stewart. She's considered to be America's very first woman of color who is a political writer, like a compilation of her of her work. So. Marilyn Richardson was extremely curious about Edmonia at this point. She wanted to know where she died, what she died of, where is she buried? And thanks to Marilyn Richardson, we know so much more now than we did even when Cleopatra was found outside of Chicago. Marilyn Richardson discovered where Edmonia was buried in that graveyard in London. She went and looked at the grave. It was just a rock, like a large rock over the grave. Not a very nice marker. The East Greenbush, New York town historian decided to honor this daughter of their area and get a marker for Edmonia. So they did a GoFundMe, got enough money to put a beautiful black marble headstone on Edmonia's grave that reads Edmonia Lewis, sculptor, 1844 to 1907. So we can go there when we're in London and go see Edmonia. And I know in her will, um, Edmonia had asked for sculptor and spinster to be put on her headstone. And um, the the fellows didn't think that was appropriate in the modern age. So they did leave that part off. Mm -mm. And Edmonia made one more recent appearance just this year, just in January 2022. She came out in a U.S. postage stamp, a forever stamp, of which I have a sheet probably in my mailbox right now. She is the 45th in their series um, called Black Heritage. And um, this is what is written on the Postal Service website about it. As the first African-American and Native American sculptor to earn international recognition, Edmonia Lewis challenged social barriers and assumptions about artists in mid-19th century America. That's their 30-second summary. Yeah. (laughs) And that is all I have about the life and then the afterlife of Edmonia Lewis. So let's talk about media. Let's start with books. The primary one that I used was The Indomitable Spirit of Edmonia Lewis, a narrative biography by Harry Henderson and Albert Henderson. It is a life-to-death biography. It does veer off into speculative discussions, which is where the narrative comes in, and offering things that might have happened and evidence as to why the authors believed that that was what happened. So it's pretty, um, it's an easy read. It's very large. If you get it in the paperback form, it's quite heavy. Um, it but really has- is. I kind of am <laughs> like, is this a textbook? I know, that's what I thought too. I think it was originally created as an ebook and then printed off. So it wasn't like formatted to be There's a lot of white space. It was really easy to read. (laughs) Well, and they say things a lot like, 
surely she would have been, and I don't even know what verb case that is, but I admire yeah. in complexity. <laughs> That's right. So that was written in 2012. And as we talked about, Marilyn Richardson has already discovered new things that aren't even in there. The other major book you'll find um, about Edmonia Lewis is not as easy to read uh, in a life-to-death scenario. You kind of have to pick through and um, place things in a timeline on your own. Ask me how I know. Um, it's, called, <laughs> it's called Child of the Fire, Edmonia Lewis, and the Problem of Art History's Black and Indian Subject. Now, this one is great for... Um, like just sheer facts and background, it is not going to take you in a straight line. So if that is your desire, you know, no, this one's going to be a little hard going, but I found it very helpful with regard to the background in several situations. And I really like it. The author Kirsten Pay Buick kind of looks at it from an art perspective. So there is a lot of information about art history involved in there, things that I that the Hendersons didn't touch on. Although I will say it was so heady that it had me crying because I was like, I don't understand this woman's life. What did she just say? It was well written and there was a lot of great detail in there. And there was new new information and new insight, but I cried. <laughs> Sorry. Ah. What I didn't cry at was Scene, True Stories of Marginalized Trailblazers, Edmonia Lewis. It's from 2020. It's by Jasmine Walls, illustrated by Bex Glendening and Kieran Quigley. It is a graphic nonfiction. It's a middle grade. I love the graphic novels and the graphic nonfictions. So this is an easy way to introduce Edmonia to someone who doesn't want to read a very heady <laughs> analysis of her life and art. And I would like to recommend um, for all ages, um, even though Edmonia Lewis is only a very, very small part of this book, Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls, Immigrant Women Who Changed the World by Elena Favilli. <laughs> it even has Anna Wintour in it, Carmen Miranda, Rihanna. I mean, it's very up to date. Mm -hmm. um, it has its own little bookmark. And I have to tell you, this book smells real good. And I don't know why that's important to me. <laughs> I keep smelling this book. <laughs> I know why it's important. I get it. I, I really do. It's like, pre it's got pre-old library smell already. It's really good. And I also really like it for, you know, normal reasons too. <laughs> One other book that I read that I... I'm going to note, it's called Stone Mirrors, The Sculpture and Silence of Edmonia Lewis by Janine Atkins. It's from 2017. It is a verse novel. This was a new one to me, specifically per Kirkus Reviews. It is a historical verse fiction, but it's a fictional account based on available research of Edmonia's life written. It's not poetry, but it's verse. So there's a lot of white space and it reads kind of like poetry, but it's I wouldn't call it poetry. And I read it last because I wanted to make sure that I had her story in my head because some of these things are, they're conceptual rather than actual, she did this and she did that. So um, as far as I could tell, there it was pretty close to actual history. So it's, if you want your history in like a different format than you've been reading, I would recommend that book. Um, as to movies, you know, the, the closest we can get is a movie called Glory, which features um, a non-historically accurate version of 
Colonel Shaw, her first major bust. So let's place that to the side. There is a man working on a screenplay, but he's been working on the screenplay since 2018. A man named Roberto Mighty. I wish him the best. He is the host of a um, YouTube series called The World's Greatest Cemeteries. And he does have an episode covering, uh, in part, the grave of Edmonia Lewis. So that's something you can see on YouTube. So wait, um, he's writing a screenplay? That's what he says on his I website. What, what part writing of her life? I don't know, but I might suggest Taraji P. Henson as some casting, although she oh. is like a little too tall, but she's only 5'5", five five, whatever. But I think <laughs> she's really good. She's kind of busy right now doing the color purple, but when she's done, she might be free. <laughs> so um, just a little advice, Mr. Uh, Roberto Mighty, if you need it from me to you, <laughs> I suggest. As for websites, the one that I like the most and I got the most information from is edmonialewis.org. Org, discovering Edmonia Lewis. It's a great wealth of information um, done by a woman who calls herself a quote independent scholar, and then she says it's a very fancy word for not being paid for one's work. <laughs> I thought, oh, I get that. Uh, she has a master's in art history, so it's looked at Edmonia's life through that kind of lens. But there's all kinds of information on there. There is also EdmoniaLewis.com that is curated by Albert Henderson, who wrote that biography. It's not as flashy. It's not as slick. It's very old school style website. And I was so excited about this. I was like researching and like, I need information about what Edmonia's trips to the United States were like. I wanted to get an insight on that. And I stumbled across this article written on the website, Queens of Queen City, it's an article about Ammonia's connections to that particular city, which is Cincinnati. It's focusing on one visit there, but in so much detail, talking about the parties she went to and how she marketed the sculpture um, she was selling at the time called The Veiled Bride of Spring. But what made me so excited about this? This is the website of our friend, Sean Andrews. <laughs> you know, Sean, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, I was so excited. And I, I broke our vow and I s sent him a message. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I just ran across your awesome article. I'll link you up to it, not just because he's awesome, because it's a very detailed, excellent account of one of her trips to the United States. Um, I have promised to give you links about um, the women's sculptors at the 1893 Columbian Exhibition. So I will give you that. Also, if you would like to learn more, and I highly advise that you do, about her lawyer, John Mercer Langston, I will link you to a um, biography of him. Also, since Edmonia Lewis's... Um, timeline seems confusing. There is actually literally a timeline at edmoniallewis.com. It's one of their pages. And I found it very, very helpful to flip back and forth to that. Mm -hmm. um, oh, also a little background on New York Central College, which is one of the most interesting schools I've ever come across. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. I don't have anything else. That will do it. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a friend or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. 
Visit thehistorychicks.com to see our back catalog. We have many episodes for every occasion. Over the course of our 11 years, we have covered so many ladies, both famous and not so famous. Don't forget to check out our Pinterest boards. We have links and photos to accompany each and every episode we have produced. The song in the middle is Flummoxed by Harper Active. Use flummoxed in a sentence today. And the song at the end is The In Between by Anton Cosmo.